met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Welcome to another episode of Subconscious Realms. I'm your host, General Lee. And for tonight's episode, we are truly honoured to be speaking with one of the most fascinating authors uh, this community, in this realm has ever known to exist. In my opinion, um, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the phenomenal author, uh, Sir Derek Gilbert, Nalan Derek. Yes, sir. It is an honour to be here, General Lee. Oh, mate, <laughs> I've been after getting you on uh, subconscious realms since I started, mate. Um, you know, and we're here now. Um, well, as you said before we started, everything happens in, in the Lord's timing. So uh, this this must be the perfect time for uh, for this conversation. Yes. Uh, but before we begin, mate, um, apologies. These, you're also co-host um, with Unraveling Revelations with uh, your extraordinary and equally as fascinating wife, Sharon. Um, yeah. the work she, she's you and she's Sharon. the smart one. She's the smart one of the two of us. <laughs> Eric, um, the, the actual chemistry that you and Sharon must have to produce the work you're producing, um, it's something that you you know, it's not to be taken lightly at all. It is, you know, you are meant to be, evidently. Oh, that that is absolutely true. Uh, she uh, she and I met back in in 1997 over the internet. Well, only only 20 percent of America was online. We met uh, even though we lived about 200 miles apart. I was in St. Louis, and she's in she was in Bloomington, Indiana. She'd gone back to school as an adult, got her degree in. Uh, molecular biology with an emphasis in genetics while I was working as a, uh, a steel pipe salesman uh, after a, deciding I needed to get out of a career in broadcasting. I was a radio broadcaster from um, my time beginning in college. Really, I worked my way through college as a radio broadcaster. Um, but after moving around so often, I think five different uh, addresses in the first two years after getting out of college or something like that, um, it was about 10 years in, and uh, after getting fired by long-distance telephone call uh, the day before Thanksgiving of 1990, I began to look for another way to make a living. It uh, didn't seem like a good way to raise up a family. So, uh, But uh, anyway, it, uh, it, it, it interesting how the paths we've taken were, were ordered or have been ordered. You can just imagine in the divine council, you know, the uh, heavenly court around God as he's saying, okay, watch, now I'm going to bring her together with him. And uh, we're, we're, you just watch what happens. You can just see the angels around the throne. Say, really? Lord, really? 
That's fascinating to hear, mate. Um, like you're saying, things just don't happen. They're, they're meant to happen. Th- that is true. I, I don't believe in coincidences anymore. There's no such um, thing. <laughs> no, no. I, I am no longer a coincidence theorist. So when things happen... <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, I wish it was original to me. I use it a lot, but it's not original to me. But uh, no, it's 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 true. Um, Sharon has had a very interesting and unique life. She was a professional vocalist. Could have she made her, In fact, she made a living for more than 20 years as a professional singer. Uh, both fronting uh, musical groups and uh, singing in a jingle studio. Uh, whereas I was uh, on the radio as a top 40 uh, contemporary hit music radio disc jockey for uh, a number of years and um, got out of that business, went into sales. And, you know, had it not been for uh, really the hand of God, we we would not have met. I mean, uh, we met through a an online dating service, Match.com, back in 1997, when it was in the very early days. And uh, I remember after, you know, filling out the little, the little form there, that uh, the online form, who are you looking for? Hair color, smoker, non-smoker, religious preference, whatever. How far are you willing to travel to meet somebody? And I thought, okay, well, if this is somebody I'm willing to spend the rest of my life with, because at this point I was, I was um, my marriage was, not yet final, the divorce, not yet final, but it was, it was, you know, in the works. Um, I thought, okay, well, I'd be willing to go 200 miles. And we come to find out later on that Bloomington, Indiana was 195 miles as the crow flies from uh, my home in suburban St. Louis. So, you know, had I put 50 miles or a hundred miles would never have come across her profile in that, uh, uh, in, in that s- service. And, and now here we are, we're, we're going to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary in, uh, in about six weeks. Right. Congratulations. That is, it's a, a fascinating, um, story on how you and Sharon met. Like you said, just, if you change your, um, search options, just a slight yeah. bit, you might have never met Sharon. I mean, my friends thought I was nuts. It's like, well, come on, man. It was like two and a half million people within a 50 mile radius. What? what? Yeah, <laughs> going all the way to Indiana. It's like, well, because she was ordained uh, from the beginning of time. I mean, God sees the end from the beginning. And so when we consider that and realize that we're all here at a really interesting period of human history, uh, and God chose us to be here specifically, we have to ask, why? Why did he pick me to be here now? There must be something in his plan where he's placed me here. And then, of course, created with free will. I've got the opportunity to either do what he would have me do or choose to reject that and do my own thing. Um, I, I think since he spoke the universe into creation, I'll try to, you know, <laughs> read his word, figure out what it wants, what he wants me to do, and then do that. Well, Derek, the work that you and Sharon produce, it's, um, there's nothing else that, that comes close to it. It's, no, you're very um, gracious. <laughs> I mean, I, I've only, uh, I've got Giants, Gods and Dragons on Audible, and I've lost count how many times I've re-listened to it. It's just, every time I listen to it, there's something else, something else finding. Not that... I'm missing anything. It's just 
that much fascination in it. Well, the Bible is that way, and it really, th that book and our previous book, Veneration, the one we're working on now called The Gates of Hell, which will be coming out in 2023, all oh, comes out. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it derives from uh, uh, Jesus and the disciples in front of the Grotto of Pan uh, at the base of Mount Hermon, Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Wait, Peter said, you know... Sorry, Derek, we were just mentioning um, Pan. Is that Greek god Pan? Yes, yes. Ah. The, the, uh, the site of Caesarea Philippi at the base of Mount Hermon was a, uh, a pagan site full of pagan temples to a variety of gods. And in Jesus' day, the first century AD, uh, everything from you know Jupiter, who was the head of the Roman pantheon, to um, a temple there for the cult of the emperor. But... Uh, lesser Roman deities, but uh, our, our friend, Dr. Judd Burton, who did his doctoral dissertation on that site, found evidence that it was um, certainly worshipped in the, or as a, a, a cult center in the Greek period. The Greeks called it Panias. Uh, today it's called Banias, because in Arabic they don't have the P as in Peter sound. They, they have a B as in, uh, well, boy. Um, Jesus specifically, this was a site where where some sort of nature deity was worshipped for centuries prior to the time of Jesus. And uh, being at the foot of Mount Hermon, which was a, a mountain, the tallest mountain anywhere near Israel, 9,200 feet, um, three times taller than any other mountain in or near Israel. But it was, it was known as far away as Babylon, which was like a four-month walk back in the day. Um, it was known as a site that was sacred to the gods. So Jesus went there. Well, yeah, if you're going to walk across the desert from Babylon, like uh, when the Jews were returning after the uh, uh, the, the sojourn, after the, the Babylonian captivity, it was like three to four months to get from Babylon back to back to Israel. So even though this mountain, Mount Hermon, was that far away from Babylon, the 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 Babylonians, the Amorites who founded the kingdom of Babylon, they knew that this mountain was the secret dwelling of the Anunnaki, according to the Epic of Gilgamesh. So there was something about that mountain going back to the time of Abraham and before that they knew that the pagan gods resided there. The creator god of the Canaanites lived on Mount Hermon. And at the bottom of the mountain is this big cave that was called the Grotto of Pan. It was the source of the River Jordan. And Jesus took his disciples there specifically to ask them, who do people say the Son of Man is? Of course, that was a title for the Messianic character, Jesus himself, the Messiah. And, you know, they well, some say he's Elijah, some say he's this or that or the other. And then Jesus turns to Peter and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And on this rock, standing in front of this 9,200-foot mountain that was the home of the pagan gods, according to the pagans, uh, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, which is this big cave over here that everyone knows is the entrance to the netherworld, or at least they yeah. believe it was, will not prevail against it. So that's the inspiration for the title of our forthcoming book. But uh, 
you know, the, the point of that and, and the book is that there are specific locations in the Holy Land where Jesus chose to do certain things, deliver certain messages that make those messages, those scriptures, much easier to understand. Jesus wasn't saying the gates of hell, speaking in sort of, you know, flowery, uh, picturesque language. He literally meant that he was declaring war on the spirits who rebelled against him, God, and did it at a place where the point would be impossible to miss, because all the disciples had to know, okay, we're here in this cult this this cult center, this this pilgrimage site for pagans. Why did you bring us here, Rabbi? You know, and yeah. Jesus did it specifically to deliver that message. And and the Bible is full of stuff like that. If you know what you're looking for. Yeah, um, I mean it's like uh, like Gary's Genesis six conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just rampacks with like vital uh, information that we we really should should be made aware of. Um, it's and, like and, that. There are, and there are people who will who will uh, you know ask us, well, you know, why why are you talking about this weird stuff? Why are you talking about Mount Hermon? And why are you talking about the Nephilim? And why are you talking about um, the these? you know, the cult of the dead and, 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 uh, and the, nef- and all of this, well, shouldn't we just be talking about Jesus? Well, yeah, we should. And we are because, we, and, and that's going to be the point of our next book. The, the geography of Jesus ministries points to all of this stuff. It points to all of this stuff. In fact, in the second coming of Saturn, which was my most recent book, I spent a chapter on, um, the attention that Jesus paid on to, to Mount Hermon, and then another chapter to the Mount of Olives, showing that there's a connection between those two. Mount of Olives, did you say then, David? The, the Mount of Olives is, is the mount just to the east of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's uh, just across the Kidron Valley. And uh, people who visit Jerusalem, visit Israel, as uh, we're, we're going to do in March of next year and uh, April of the following year, with our, our friends at Lipkin Tours in uh, in Israel, you could look you look down on the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. Yeah, Je- Jesus spent the last week of his life dividing his time between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount. So he would go to the temple each day, and yeah. he would you know drove out the money changers, and he was teaching and preaching and healing. But then he would go back to the Mount of Olives, where he raised Lazarus from the dead. That was before the final week of his life. But during that last week of his life. He was there. He he delivered the Olivet Discourse, which is the longest teaching he gave on end times prophecy. The there, Olivet on the Discourse. Uh, I'm sorry, I missed. I missed that. So was that? Did you say that was called the Olivet Discourse? Yes, that that's what scholars call it, the Olivet Discourse, because he delivered it on the Mount of Olives or Mount Olivet, as it's sometimes called. Um, and I, I think this is significant because. In Solomon's day, so almost a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, King Solomon, toward the end of his life, was persuaded, shall we say, by his foreign wives. He took many, many foreign wives from the neighboring countries to build high places on the Mount of Olives. And and one of those was to the god uh, Molech. Molech? Yeah, now Molech was the one who people probably know was the god who demanded the sacrifice of children. 
The Israelites have been told since the time of Moses not to burn their children in fire as an offering to Molech. Well, I show in the book, The Second Coming of Saturn, that Molech was what the Hebrews called the Canaanite creator god called El, also referred to by the uh, Greeks as Kronos and the Romans as Saturn. I also believe he is the... uh, he is to be identified as the leader of the rebellion of the Watchers, uh, who descended to Mount Hermon, Shemiaza, and I believe that he is the same entity who emerges from the bottomless pit in Revelation chapter nine, called the Destroyer, Apollyon, or Abaddon. But also oh, the direct right. I think yeah, the same entity. So Jesus spends the last week of his life preaching on the Mount of Olives, where Solomon had built essentially a temple to Molech. And because it's east of the Temple Mount, whenever the priests would uh, open the doors of Solomon's temple and look to the east, you look up at the hill across the valley, and there's the Temple to Molech on top of that hill. And so they referred to the Mount of Olives as the Mount of Corruption, except that when you translate the Hebrew literally, it actually reads Mount of the Destroyer. Mount of the Destroyer. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the, the destroyer is that that's that's what Abaddon or Apollyon means. It means the destroyer. So Jesus, in the last week of his life, goes there, raises Lazarus from the dead, delivers the Olivet Discourse. He's betrayed there. He's crucified there. He's buried there. And then, according to First Peter three, he descends into the abyss, the bottomless pit, and proclaims to the prisoners. And what he's doing is he's proclaiming victory over Abaddon, Apollyon, Shemiyaza, Saturn, Kronos, whatever you want to call him, Molech, declaring victory. As our friend Dr. Michael Heiser puts it, Jesus said something like, hey, bet you didn't expect to see me here, but here's a newsflash. <laughs> at, dawn, at dawn of the third day, I get out and you're still dead. Yeah. And then he has out, and uh, he is, he's resurrected from there, and according to the Gospel of Luke, he is caught up into heaven from Bethany, which is on the Mount of Olives, and according to Zechariah 14, when he returns, he lands on the Mount of Olives and splits it in half. So again, the geography, the geography of Jesus' ministry, from where he declared his divinity in the north at Mount Hermon, and where he spent the last week of his life on this earth before the resurrection— and where he's going to return, all connected to this long supernatural war against these angels, these spirit beings who rebelled against God, against him. Incredible, mate. It really is incredible. Um, just, uh, I've got a question for you, please, Derek, if that's okay. Um, mm-hmm. Shemyaza. Uh, now, from what I'm led to believe, there's two, uh, two main entities, Shemyaza and Azazel. Mm-hmm. Um, are they one and the same entity, or are they completely two different um, beings, so to speak? Well, in, in the Book of Enoch, they're depicted as two separate entities. Shemiyasa is called the Chief of the Watchers, and Azazel, or Azael, is uh, the one who's responsible for teaching us forbidden knowledge. Shemiyasa led the whole rebellion. He's the one who said, I'm afraid I'm going to suffer the penalty alone for this great sin, uh, you know, taking human women, crossing the species barrier, which was forbidden. Uh, and so they declared through mutual oaths that they would all go ahead with this, the 200, his 200 cohorts, uh, which is why Mount Hermon gets its name. It derives from a Hebrew word that means um, forbidden, under the ban, like 
This is so off limits that if you touch it, you die. Uh, the word is karem. Karem. Yeah, my Hebrew pronunciation is awful. Usually, in the it, you, we see it a lot in the in the book of Joshua, where uh, Joshua is told to devote to destruction a number of Amorite villages during the conquest of Canaan. They devoted this to destruction. They devoted that to destruction. Uh, that word is harem, means under the ban. And Herman comes from that same word. So that gives you a sense of how the, the Hebrews, how the Israelites, how the Jews viewed Mount Herman. This was a pagan place, completely off limits. You know, we shouldn't ever go there. And of course, yeah. as I mentioned, that's where Jesus took the disciples at the base of Mount Hermon to uh, declare his divinity. Yes, I am the son of man. And then you notice in the gospels, he takes Peter, James, and John up a very high mountain six days later, and he's transfigured. The transfiguration yeah. takes place on Mount Hermon, which is supposed to be the mountain of this pagan pantheon led by the Canaanite creator God El, who I believe is Shemiyaza, yeah. or Saturn, or Kronos, or whatever you want, Molech, uh, Abaddon, Apollyon, the destroyer, same entity, different names. Jesus goes there for the transfiguration. It's like sending a flare into the spirit realm. <laughs> so that that is who Shemiyaza is. He was the leader of that rebellion. I believe that Azael or Azazel is a different character. Right, he, he's right. Like, he's like the Prometheus character from uh, Greek mythology. But it's hard to know. I mean, this is not a question I would stake um, my, my reputation on because we're trying to see into a dimension where these characters operate outside of normal sight. They, they are operating in more dimensions than you and me. Yeah. So Sharon, it, it, there, there's another entity that it illustrates this really well. The ancient Sumerian goddess called Inanna, Inanna. was, uh, known as Ishtar in the Bible. She's called Astarte or Ashtoreth. She was, um, depending on her mood, either female or male. Yeah. And also like, uh, um, oh, what's it called now? Oh. The modern trans, uh, transgender movement. Yes. Like, um, and she, yeah. there are Sumerian, yeah. Sumerian Sims that, uh, hymns rather that have been translated or maybe hers. I don't know. Hymns that have been translated, praising her for being able to change women into men and men into women. This goes back almost 5,000 years. Incredible. So, is it hermaphrodite? Is that was the right, right, right. And by the time of the uh, the Old Testament, th this entity had split into two different aspects. Where she was known as Astarte in the Canaanite pantheon, but there was a male war god aspect called Athtar. And Athtar, they, they were both represented by the planet Venus. Athtar was the male aspect in the morning. When Venus was the morning star, but when Venus was up at night, the evening star, that was Astarte. So how is that possible that this one entity can manifest as two separate genders, two separate entities? And well, again, remember, they're operating in more dimensions than we are. Sharon describes it like this. I think it's a good illustration. Finger puppets. Finger puppets. Finger puppets. You've got one entity, multiple finger puppets, and we only perceive the puppets. We don't see the hand operating the puppet and realizing yeah. that it's the same hand. So yeah. from about the time of Solomon and David onward, 
Astarte or Ishtar Anana had been divided into two separate entities that were worshipped separately. Astar as a war god and Astarte as a god of a goddess of carnal carnal sex, and uh, that continued well into the modern era. Well, Derek, um, you can sort of it's like equal fascination and um, beyond um, you could imagine to be able to like, I guess, some sort of shapeshifter. If it can go like, That's a good both male and female um, like that, it is um, it's remarkable. But Jesus said that uh, you know, in the angels in heaven neither marry nor give in marriage. It's because they weren't created for that. They don't need to in that in that supernatural realm. They don't need to reproduce in order to continue the species. Here in the natural realm, we were created male and female, and yet today, one of the most uh, powerful cultural movements, especially here in uh, North America, uh, it's good to see the UK is starting to push back on it with the closing of Tavistock. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if you openly declare that a man cannot have a baby, <laughs> you, you can get kicked off social media. If you're in academia, you can be you can lose your job, lose tenure for just declaring simple biological fact. I mean, Jesus said it to the Pharisees. Have you not read from the beginning, created he them male and female. Um, and I think this movement is so illogical, both intellectually and scientifically, that it must be spiritual. And I think we can trace it back to this old entity from ancient Sumer, Inanna. You know, I'm not quite sure how difficult it can't be. Um, like you're saying, biology, um, a man is a man. And... Um, a woman is a woman. Now, I'm not saying I'm anti whatever, whoever wants to be, whatever they think they are. Um, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It, I mean it in, it is what it is. No, I agree with you. It's just a simple biological fact. There is no animosity. I mean, everyone, regardless of what their personal beliefs are or whatever their, their psychological uh, state is, um, and, you know, and, and I, I don't claim to be the most stable or rational uh, man walking the, the, the face of the earth, but all of us need Jesus because these entities have been trying since creation to work against the creator. And part of that is taking dominion of this beautiful planet away from us. And if they can't have it, they'll just destroy it. You know, they'll go scorched earth and make sure that nobody can have it. I mean, this is, we are living out the parable of the wicked tenants. The, the uh, wicked tenants. This was the uh, the vineyard that was planted by a man who lived in a far distant country, and he leased it out to these uh, tenants who were supposed to work the vineyard and then send him the produce, send him the grapes. And uh, when the landowner who lived far away sent one messenger, he was beaten and sent away empty-handed. He sent another messenger, and they beat him and sent him away. They sent a third, and they, uh, they, they, they beat him as well. And so finally, the landowner says, "Ah, I will send my son. Surely they will respect him." Well, instead, the tenants figured, "Hey, if we kill him, we'll get his inheritance." And then Jesus stopped and he asked his audience, "What do you think will happen when the uh, landowner finally comes himself?" And uh, the people 
who were hearing this said, well, they'll, they'll be destroyed. And then the Gospels tell us the, uh, the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, perceived that Jesus was speaking about them. But I think Jesus was really directing it not just at them, but at the spirits behind them. Because there are a number of angelic beings, and that's really an imprecise term, angel, but we'll use it because that's the one we're familiar with, who were given the responsibility of administering the earth on God's behalf. And they have chosen to rule unjustly. Psalm 82 is like a courtroom scene in heaven where God proclaims a death sentence on these entities. Though you are gods, all of you, sons of the Most High, like men you shall die and fall like any prince, because they have ruled unjustly. They have mismanaged this, this, this planet that he created. He gave dominion of it to the children of Adam and Eve, and then he left us in the care of these entities after the Tower of Babel incident. That's uh, described in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, when God divided the nations. He numbered them according to the number of the sons of God. And they chose to set themselves up as deities in their own right and yeah. to rule unjustly. And so God has proclaimed a death sentence. We're waiting for sentence to be carried out. But I think when we look at that, that parable of the wicked tenants, they thought when God sent his son to, 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 the, to the tenants who were administering his, his holding, his land for him, that they thought, hey, if we kill him, we'll get his inheritance. But as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, verse 8, if I remember correctly, uh, the rulers of this age, and when he, he writes rulers, he's using the word archons, which means not politicians. He's talking about these spirit beings. If they'd understood yeah. the mystery that God was revealing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And I'm sorry, it's 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. I mean, that, that's really astonishing. They thought that they had Jesus right where they wanted him because, hey, he's, he's fully human. He's vulnerable. We can, if we kill him, we'll get his inheritance. It's, it's 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. I want to make sure I get that right for your, for your listeners. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Yeah. They, thought, they thought, hey, he's, he's human. He's vulnerable. We can kill him. We'll get his inheritance. We'll get the earth. And instead, as uh, again, you know, Mike Kaiser, he goes down and proclaims victory. <laughs> I'm getting out of here at dawn of the third day, and you're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Derek, it's just layer upon layer of fascination. Um, <laughs> I love it all, mate. I love it all. Your um, new book, Derek, do you know? I can't say that, oh, could we speak about this? Could we speak about that? There's, there's so much. <laughs> there is so much that we could speak about. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, we could we could do hours if I had the time. The <laughs> <laughs> um, latest book. I am intrigued. Um, would you like to speak a bit about your latest release, please, Derek? Sure. Well, the second coming of Saturn basically uh, traces the career of this this old entity. I've been kind of intrigued by him ever since Sharon and I started down this this path of research about uh, seven years ago. Um, 
once I realized, thanks to the work of Dr. Mike, Dr. Mike Heiser, that uh, the divine council, which is that a phrase mentioned in Psalm 82, God takes his place in the midst of the divine council, um, that uh, there are more spirits at work in uh, our world than, than we give credit to. It's not just Satan and some demons. There are a number of entities that were well-known in the ancient world. Uh, we in the modern church have just sort of forgotten what our uh, forefathers and, and foremothers knew. Um, but this, this entity, this, this character, Shemiyaza, who led this rebellion in Genesis chapter 6, the leader of the, the sons of God who yeah. descended Mount Hermon, according to the book of First Enoch, why does he sort of disappear from history, uh, it seems? I mean, those of us who've even heard about him, so, okay, well, he's in chains in, in the underworld, and, and that's the end of it. But when you look at the uh, stories that are told about the creation of the world, the creation of the universe, and uh, the, the generations of the gods told by the pagans around ancient Israel, from uh, ancient Sumer to the Greeks and Romans, there is a pattern that repeats where a creator god, um, you know, basically uh, is, is succeeded by a sky god who's then replaced by a grain god who's then replaced by the storm god. This happens over and again where uh, the, the first generation, you know, chaos and uh, the, the abyss uh, are replaced by Anu, the sky god. He's replaced by Enlil. Uh, who is uh, sort of the father of the gods. And then finally, Enlil is replaced by Marduk, who is not a storm god specifically, but he's got attributes of the storm god. Um, but you see that pattern again and again, where uh, the sky god uh, is replaced by El, who's replaced by Baal in the Canaanite pantheon. In the Greek pantheon, it's uh, uh, Uranus replaced by Kronos, who's replaced by Zeus. You know, And and this, this is again and again and again. Even in the... Uh, uh, the Norse pantheon, where Odin, the All Fathers, are replaced by Thor, the sky, you know, the uh, the, the god of thunder. Um, yeah. and, and even in you know the 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 ancient Hindu pantheon, we see this again and again. Um, we, we were watching some stuff on uh, Mesoamerican deities with uh, Tlaloc, the uh, the the storm god, playing a really vital, important role. Well, Jesus identified the storm god in Matthew twelve, Baal, as Satan. Baal. He's confronted by uh, the Pharisees saying he's casting out demons by the power of Baal Zebul, Baal the prince. And Jesus says, if uh, Satan casts out demons by his own power, how will his kingdom stand? So, oh, okay. So Baal, Zeus, Jupiter, that's that's Satan. Okay. So the level above him, Saturn, Kronos, uh, the Hittites and Hurrians called him Kumarbi, uh, El, Enlil, Dagon, Molech, all occupy the same slot in the pantheon of those respective cultures. Well, and I thought, David, okay. And, and that, that entity, once he's overthrown by the storm God, winds up in the netherworld or in, in Tartarus, specifically in the Greek and Roman myths. That's just like Shemiyaza and his colleagues being cast down to the abyss. Second Peter 2, verse 4 says, they were thrust down to Tartarus. Like, oh, okay, not Hades, but Tartarus. That's a separate level of the netherworld. And that's the only place in the New Testament where that word, that Greek word is used. Now, it's translated into English as hell, so most of us reading it don't notice the difference. But it's not Hades, it's Tartarosus in the Greek. That's Tartarus. That's, in the Greek Tart mind, 
as far below Hades as the earth is below heaven. So there's something special going on here. So in the book, I make the, ca the case that Shemiyaza, who led that rebellion, who was known throughout history as Enlil, El, Dagon, Molech, Kronos, Saturn, and a bunch of other names, is the, the, they're one in the same as uh, one in the same. Yeah. And that, uh, that he is also then known as uh, Apollyon and Abaddon, the destroyer who emerges from the abyss, from the bottomless pit in Revelation 9. And I, I show the scriptures where that comes together, show all of the, the secular peer-reviewed research connecting all of the names of this entity, El, Molech, Kronos, Dagon, Asher, the chief god of the Assyrians, all the same entity, just by different names. Yeah, and when yeah. You, you and so that, that's basically the the thrust of the book, uh, ex except for the ending where I show that uh, the the art and architecture of the United States Capitol seems to seems to be inspired at the very least by the uh, Roman poet Virgil and his poem, uh, the Fourth Eclogue, which some interpret as a prophecy as a return to a golden age when Saturn will return and rule, hence the name of the book, The Second Coming of Saturn. Yeah, yeah. Very cleverly worded that way, I love it. Perfect title. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, Derek, um, um, uh, like Apollo, um, Apollyon, Abaddon, mm -hmm. uh, just be the same uh, god but from a different pantheon as Shiva. Um, would it well, also be? Go on, I'll, I'll tell you what. Is she, Shiva? Is that? Um, would that be the same entity um, in a certain way? I, I would need to do more study on the Hindu uh, pantheon. To be honest with you, I do. I do know that Shiva's, you know, a uh, you know, destroyer of worlds, and so it, it's possible. But I haven't, to, to be honest, I haven't done enough study of the Hindu pantheon to know uh, if they, if there's a strong connection there. Yeah, it's. Um, each pantheon, uh, they're all steeped with fascination. Uh, I mean, like we've got the, the Hindu pantheon, what you just mentioned, uh, and, and we've got like uh, Sununos. Would you say, say that that could be in that same direction? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Shern and I've talked about uh, Hernunos and the uh, the link to uh, Hearn the Hunter, but also yes. the uh, the the connection both linguistically and um, symbolically with, with Kronos. I mean, Hrunonos is the, the horned deity and uh, a scholar from the University of Edinburgh, in fact, uh, Dr. Nicholas Wyatt, pointed out that the name Kronos derives from a Semitic word that means horns. So Kronos is essentially the horned one. You see, this is, this is why you, you are... <laughs> Like so, so like fascinating <laughs> that well, um, putting that you, together. You just well, no, you're very gracious, but you know we really stand on the shoulders of giants because if it wasn't for the work of scholars who can read those original languages and put these papers together, um, you know, I, I'd have nothing. <laughs> uh, I, you know, for you to say that, Derek, um, it's just goes to show what kind of a person you are um you know giving other people credit as well and that's what well, it's all about well you're right it's it's about the message and and it's true because uh 
you know, for me, going to a, an archaeology conference, I mean, Sharon and I were such nerds when um, the archaeology <laughs> team. <laughs> we, we had the opportunity to go to uh, an archaeology conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico last yeah. fall and uh, this fall, rather. Uh, we went last fall and again this fall, and we we plan to go again next year if they have it again. And, and for us, meeting the archaeologists who who do the digs in Israel and these uh, sites in in the ancient world, I mean, for them, I mean, for for us, they're rock stars. I mean, and I don't mean that as a pun. I mean, we we just <laughs> those guys are the ones who are going out in really hot weather. I mean, okay, forty degrees, and, and they're out there. And, and I mean, 40 degrees Celsius for our American listeners, uh, you know, they're out there digging in the sand and, and we just read the papers that, you know, summarize what they found after those long days of painstakingly, uh, you know, carefully brushing away the uh, sand from these little pieces of clay. God bless them for being called to that work, because if it wasn't for that, you know, this information wouldn't be coming together. It's just that most of them don't have the time or the inclination to try to bridge the gap between their work and their world in academia and people in the pews. We're just trying to collate this stuff and say, hey, look, we've we've found these puzzle pieces that seem to fit together. And guess what? It confirms or at least reinforces the story, the, the narrative in the Bible. And it helps us to make sense of some of the weird parts. And that's it's what like, really gets us excited. It's like each one, um, I mean, I guess we're all a part of the puzzle, uh, each doing our own little bit, getting the message out. Amen. Uh, yeah. Um, it's just <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, second coming of Saturn. So what, what's the, uh, the basis? Oh, is it uh, like a continuation of previous books like do they fall into place or are they completely different um, different areas of your research it, it really does grow out of uh, earlier research and uh, be, because as, as we were researching for example uh, the book before giants gods and dragons our book veneration which really dealt with the rephaim and the nephilim which are just different names for the same Entities. The Nephilim were the giants lived before the flood. Uh, they were called Rephaim afterwards. We can't say for sure that, especially in the post flood era, that there were giants walking around in the land. Uh, when you look at the oldest Hebrew texts, for example, Goliath is described as six foot nine rather than nine. nine. <laughs> it's still a big lot, isn't it? Well, yeah, still, I mean, in, in, in yeah, a day so when, uh, yeah, I mean, in the time of David, the, uh, the average height of an Israelite was five foot four. So six foot nine is still pretty, still pretty big. But yeah, our, our research found that, uh, Goliath and his buddies were probably, and we can show this from inscriptions, from, from text and from the Bible, uh, that they were probably members of a, a, a warrior cult that venerated or worshipped the spirits of the Rephaim. And we know now from texts that were found from about the time of the judges, Canaanite texts, that the Rephaim were part of the uh, the religious system of the pagan Canaanites who lived around ancient Israel. So 
they were worshipped. And they were considered the mighty men who were of old, the Nephilim, the giants who lived in the pre-flood era. That we can document. And so, but but as part of that research, it's like, okay, but again, that that takes us back to Mount Hermon and that rebellion of the Watchers and the entity that led that rebellion, Shemiyaza. So I thought, okay, we've collected, I've collected a bunch of information over the years for these other books. Let me do a book that just focuses on that. And then, of course, Sharon, God bless her, being the smart one, pointed me at some research showing that the uh, the people called the Hurrians in the ancient world were far more important in the history of the Bible. In the Bible, they're called Horites. They just get a few mentions in like, you know, Genesis and uh, Deuteronomy. But they were far more important in spreading this idea that you needed to summon the gods from the netherworld in order to get favors from them. This is a practice that continues, well, down to the present day in the form of ancestor worship. We see it in, well, all over the world, from Mexico to China to Africa. Um, it, it goes on to this very day. Uh, and we could trace it back to Mount Hermon. And uh, so in, in the process of collecting all of that information, I wanted to collate it. And uh, uh, again, with the addition of the, uh, the the research into the ancient Hurrian culture, which I show in the book, can be traced back to the Ararat Plain. In other words, the plain below the mountains of Ararat where Noah's Ark came to rest. And then take that all the way through to uh, the book of Revelation and the emergence of the destroyer from the abyss. It's just epic. Wow. <laughs> it is incredible. Well, I, I, you know, I know. This is why archaeology is so awesome. Archaeology is cool, and it does not contradict the Bible. Now, the dates don't match what we would find if we just sat down with, the, well, like Archbishop Usher did uh, back in the 18th century, when he or 17th century, when he added up the dates and came, concluded that the earth was created in uh, 4004 B.C. But when you look at the narrative or the, uh, the sequence of events in the archaeological record, it matches what's in the Bible. And I think that's what's really important. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, like I've said to you, um, I haven't read the Bible. Um, I'm not going to lie and say I've, when I, I've not. Um, yes, I would love to read it at some point, um, especially certain parts, like uh, Genesis especially. Um, like with what Gary Wayne's done with his Genesis 6 conspiracy. Um, Fascinating stuff there, but it's it's woven all through the Bible. You find some just absolutely stunning material in Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel chapters 30, well, really 28 through 32, in addition to 38 and 39, of course. Uh, Isaiah's got some fascinating stuff. Isaiah 14, Isaiah 26. Uh, man, I mean... You know, Isaiah 26, other lords have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are Rephaim. They will not arise. Uh, okay, Isaiah is talking about resurrection, but not for them. So, you know, the, the Rephaim are woven all through the Old Testament. It's just that because our English Bibles have translated them out, usually rendering them as the dead, the shades, or the departed— we don't see them there where we should. Do you, Derek, do you think, um, like, 
the mention of Raphaim. Um, do you think there's a link between the Raphaim and um, the term for a demon entity? Are they um, are they one and the same, or are they different again? Or is is that something that not one hundred percent? We. We lean to the, the understanding that uh, they are one and the same. The spirits of the giants destroyed in the flood are demons. So what was being, these entities worshipped by the Canaanites around ancient Israel, when they worshipped the Rephaim, they were worshipping demons. And the spirits of the ancestors, who the Amorites and the Canaanites worshipped, the spirits they thought were their ancestors, were demons. There is no incident instance in the in the bible except for uh the 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 uh, the time when Saul the night before he died in battle with the Philistines went to the the medium of Endor and was was given a message by the spirit of Samuel I mean the bible is pretty clear in in 1 Samuel that it was uh, that it was Samuel who came to deliver that message but there is no other example in scripture where um human spirits kind of hang around waiting to fulfill unfinished business. That just doesn't, that's not, that's not the way it works. But it was the understanding of the early church. And it's, it's pretty clear from um, hints in scripture, when you know what you're looking for, that uh, it was understood that the spirits of these giants destroyed in the flood, still afflicted humanity were still, present on the earth. I mean, the book of First Enoch makes it explicit that those were the spirits of giants destroyed in the flood, and that was the understanding of the early church. And for the first four centuries after the, the resurrection, when you look at the, uh, the most prominent early Christian theologians, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Athenagoras, Origen, etc., 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 they were all in agreement. Demons yeah. were the spirits of the giants destroyed in the flood, and those giants were created when angels came down and mated with human women. That was Christianity 101, 2,000 years ago. Right, right. I think, do you think that there, um, there are parts of the Bible what have been deliberately left out of people knowing? I don't think anything has been left out that was not, uh, that wasn't done, that, that there aren't any parts that were left out uh, by conspiracy. Let me put it that way. I, I believe and accept that the Holy Spirit guided the early church in deciding which books should be part of the canon. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I, um, I get what you mean with that one, mate. It's like first, a, Enoch, first, first Enoch wasn't created until um, the, the last couple of centuries, and that's where we get you know what we know about uh, the, the rebellion in Mount Hermon and so forth. Uh, until like about 250, 300 years before the birth of Jesus. But uh, uh, yeah, there was a lot of debate in the early churches of whether Enoch should be in or out. And there were some like uh, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, who argued for it, others who argued against it. Um, we can get some valid information from it, and especially when we note that there are references to it in Peter, Second Peter specifically, and Jude. Um, well, in First Peter three, Jesus descending into the, uh, uh, the the abyss to proclaim to the spirits in prison. Um, there are references to Enoch in the New Testament, 
And in fact, we just recently learned, I should have known this because Mike Heiser wrote it in his uh, Reader's Companion to the Book of Enoch, that uh, one of the most commonly used terms for the Messiah in the New Testament, used by Jesus himself, the Son of Man, doesn't appear in any other Jewish writing except the book of First Enoch. So Jesus himself validates the book of First Enoch. But there's some weird parts in there, too, that are just really kind of, you know, off the rails weird. So maybe best that we just use that to help explain some of the parts of the New Testament that don't otherwise make sense. Uh, yes. What was Jude talking about here? What was Jude talking about over here? Oh, yeah, that's a reference to the book of First Enoch. Okay. Um, but no, I, I don't think there's anything that was left out that should be in. I think everything that's supposed to be in there is in there. Yeah, um, I mean, it's doing a lot of controversy around the Vatican. Now, um, I wouldn't like to guess what's in there, because you hmm. get a lot of speculation, oh, there's this, there's that, um, and some of them are pretty far out. Equally as fascinating as the next, but still. Um, who knows what, yeah. what they've got, if, what information they're hiding from us, if they, even if they are. Of course, that, that way lies madness. There are a lot of books out there that, uh, especially after Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code came out, where, uh, you know, the premise of the book is uh, archaeologists stumbles onto a discovery that's you know, sh shakes the foundations of the church to its very core. Like, okay, <laughs> this is so repetitious now, it's become a trope. Uh, it's, it's, you know, let, move along, let come up with something else. Will you <laughs> move along, <laughs> go, go, go back to first Corinthians 15, Paul wrote, writing to the church at Corinth saying, look, resurrection is a critical part of the gospel. You can't throw out the resurrection and still have a gospel. If Jesus is not raised, then we of all men are most to be pitied. But he wrote to them, there, you know, he appeared first to Peter and then to James, then to the 12, then to 500 at once, most of whom are still alive. So you don't believe me? Send somebody to Jerusalem and ask around because there are hundreds of witnesses to this guy who literally came back from the dead. <laughs> All of this other stuff that, uh, you know, the secret files in the Vatican doesn't want us to know. Look, the Vatican was not as powerful as we like to think it is until probably uh, eight or 900 AD, and it's never controlled the Eastern Church. I mean, it's why we've got an Eastern Orthodox Church, because there was a split. The Eastern Churches didn't want Rome to run their business. So, you know, we, we think the Vatican controls all of this stuff. It's like, look, I'm sorry. The Vatican, yeah, it's, it's into a lot of stuff. It's got its own secret service, its own intelligence services and all that. But it's never been as, you know, it's, it's, it's like the same conspiracy theories that say NASA has the power to shut down all contradiction of the flat earth theory. Really? Then why do you still have a YouTube channel? <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> That's a huge point that way. <laughs> let's let's focus, on, before, focus before on what we, we know. Yeah. Before we just watch your... Your um, your theory on Earthrealm? Do you think that we are um, on a sphere, or do you think we are uh, flat? I, I think the science, and I, you know, I do not put science above the Bible when it comes to matters of faith, but I think there are enough observations 
from from neutral observers that that confirm that we are living on a ball. Um, you know, we, we, you've got a, a Bible believing Christian, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, I, I'm going to forget his last name. I believe it's Jeffrey Anderson, who's a colonel with the uh, United States Air Force, and he spent quite a bit of time on the space station, taking photographs, high resolution photographs that he's published in a book. Um, and he is a financial supporter of the Institute for Creation Research. I mean, this is a openly professing Christian who puts his money where his mouth is and supports the work of a ministry that is promoting the idea that God spoke the universe into creation. Now, if there are other Christians who want to say that this man is part of the conspiracy. Okay, well, that's their choice. I, I'm just not I'm just not going to go there. There are just things about that theory that don't make any sense to me. If we were living on a flat surface, we would never see a sunset. So, you know, I, I know that there are answers for all of this. Honestly, uh, Lee, I, I think this is a kind of a distraction and, and gets us off our game, which is talking about the hope we have in the risen Christ, Christ and him crucified, as Paul wrote. It's all about resurrection. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the, the template for all of us. As Paul wrote to 1 Corinthians 15 is an amazing chapter in the Bible. I, I keep coming back to this because he, he gives the reasons that the church in Corinth should believe in resurrection. Look, there are eyewitnesses, hundreds of them. Send someone to Jerusalem and ask. And here's why it's important, because we will be raised up. As Isaiah wrote, they are dead. They will not live. They are Rephaim. They will not arise. But then Paul writes that we, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We will be resurrected into incorruptible bodies so that we can inherit the kingdom. That's what this is all about. And we need to focus on that, not argue about, you know, yeah. points that really are not critical to getting people saved, because that's, that's what this mission is all about, making disciples of all nations. It's like, uh, it's almost as if um, they try and throw us off scent when we're getting close to something, or throw us off scent with something yes. that might, might be a bit far out. Um, and no, you know, you're absolutely right. absolutely right. So, you know, God bless him. You know, I don't, if anybody wants to believe in the flat earth, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But let's not fight over this. Let's not yeah. fight over this. It's a conversation. Yes, yes. Let us focus our guns outward. We've got enemies outside the camp. Let's not turn them inwards on one another. Let us share the hope that we have in Christ with a world that is growing dark, with gentleness and respect, according to Peter. And and uh, again, it's it's all because we're dealing with a war against death, literally against death. And that comes back to what I said earlier about the geography of Jesus' ministry, pointing to this from the very beginning of his ministry to where he declared his divinity to at the very end of his ministry, where he spent the last week of his life between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. This is all about him winning the war for us against sin and against death. And if we get caught up in side issues, well, there are a lot of people out there who don't know what this war is about, who don't know Jesus Christ, who don't know why they should believe him, what they need to be saved from. 
And if we're distracted from that mission, we are not fulfilling our co-mission, which is to yeah. make disciples of all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all ethnic groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, and that's that's what it's all about. Yeah, it's as uh, I mean, at the end of the day, like you're saying, it shouldn't go down to race, um, skin color. Um, we're all equal. Yes, yes. And we need to remember in, in the Bible, when it says nation, that Greek word is ethnos, from which we get ethnic. So we're not talking about nation states here, making disciples of all nations. No, no, making disciples of all ethnic groups. Yeah. Yeah, it is, um, that's what I believe. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I think all the, um, all the unnecessary wars, what I've gone on uh, throughout time, it's unnecessary bloodshed. You know, all, all the... It's, it's sad how, how certain um, events throughout history have, have affected us, uh, and it's been a knock-on effect. Yeah, well, it's, it's as uh, Paul wrote, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our, our wrestling match is not against human opponents, but against these principalities and powers, and cosmic rulers over this present darkness. That's who our real enemy is, the people who are waging wars, the people who are protesting in the streets, who are screaming and cursing and, and angry. They, uh, they are the kind of people that Jesus forgave from the cross, for they know not what they do. Yeah. Do, they, do you think that, um, that it's all plan of um, the Shamyaza? is to maybe turn turn us against each other. Again, well, sure. Divide, yeah, d divide and conquer. I mean, uh, even though he yeah. is in the abyss, according to Peter and Jude, in chains and gloomy darkness, he is still influencing the world from uh, from that place, just as a, uh, say, a gang leader or a mob boss in yeah. prison yeah. and still control action on the streets. He's still got communication through his his minions, those demonic entities that were created by them in the pre-flood era. Um, and, and yeah, you, you look at the number one cause of death in the world today, just as Molech, Kronos, Saturn were known to require the sacrifice of children, bail him on. Um, the number one cause of death on planet Earth in uh, the last, last two years at least, I've not looked previous to that for statistics, but 42 million abortions around the world in 2021. Number one cause of death in the world. Far yeah. Far and away, far and away, more than all communicable diseases combined. So, yes, uh, they are, and, and they're getting us to fight one another over even that. So, uh, yes, divide and conquer. It's a very old concept, and it uh, it's used to great effect. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, evidently, mate, evidently, that's why, they're, uh, that's why they do it. I do not know. Ah, there were so many abortions. That's um, that's sad. Mm, absolutely, it's it's there's tragic. No, there's nothing more greater than um, the gift of life to take it away from something that's doesn't deserve to not even given that opportunity. Amen. It's um, there's a sad times, mate. Um, I mean. We can always try, and 
when we, I mean, like us speaking now, um, together, what we can uh, discuss and, and produce is um, we can't do it alone. I think that it's like I could, I could I mean, I've never done it yet. <laughs> I don't think yet I could do it is do a podcast on me or I guess it's just mm. a confidence thing. But speaking with you is different. It's like I couldn't do it alone, but with you, I can. It's like <laughs> having that. Um, do you know what I mean? I think, um, do you know what I mean, though? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and the Lord brings us together for uh, for his purposes. So I, I, I pray that uh, the, those who hear this uh, podcast will will take some comfort in it, knowing that uh, there are others out there, and, and knowing that there is uh, there are good reasons to know that uh, the Word of God, that the Bible is the Word of God, that uh, we can be confident that those words have been preserved and actually um, tell us how much, how far He is willing to go, how much He loves us to save us from uh, eternal destruction. I love that. I, think, I love that. Yeah. It's... Uh, just goes to show that um, that the work you and Sharon do it is um, 100% for um, a genuine reason. Well, that that is our prayer. Uh, that is our prayer. You know, it's not not for our glory; it's for His. Because you know, we're we're just we're we're in the middle of of something like that. That's the the Lord of the Rings on steroids. And he did a small role in helping to equip the army fighting outside the gates of Mordor, then uh, then we are honored to do it. I guess you like Lord of the Rings, uh, Derek. Oh, I love it. <laughs> One of the uh, yes, yeah, brilliant. Did you watch the Rings of Power? Uh, no, have not, and uh, honestly, don't uh, don't have any desire to. <laughs> it's not as bad as it's how it's portrayed. I um, I thought it was decent, <laughs> but you know it's a TV series. I don't know what people expect these days. But uh, worth a watch, mate. Worth a watch if you've got um, if you find the time. Yeah, well, that's that's the key question there. <laughs> yeah, and I could imagine you have very little time. The amount of work you're doing. I mean, you've got well, your, the your author um, aspects of um, that, what the work you do, and then you've got like you've got your your podcast. You say it's daily or weekly. Well, we've got uh, I've got five updates a week for Skywatch TV as the uh, five and ten daily news update. Uh, my weekly podcast, which is video and audio, our weekly Bible study, which is a one hour audio podcast and we just brought back our original audio podcast so we're putting out about four and a half hours of content per week uh in fact i've got edio, a video that i need to get edited yet this afternoon so uh it's uh, uh there there is quite a bit on our plate but you know the time grows short we're just trying to make the most of it as uh, that we can yeah yeah uh, um question Derek, please um the rafaim are they mortal beings well, all of us are immortal beings. Um, they were once mortal, but they were hybrid creatures, the Nephilim, half divine, half human. 
And uh, as such, according to the book of First Enoch, they were denied access to the uh, the netherworld or Sheol, which is where the human dead went, although they certainly had access to it. They were there, according to uh, uh, Ezekiel chapter 32. But uh, they were um, not uh, allowed access into the heavenly realm either, like, uh, like their angelic fathers. So uh, according to Enoch, they were condemned to wander the earth, tormenting humanity until the, uh, the final judgment um, as, uh, as demons. And what's, what's really interesting is when you read the writings of the uh, Greek poet Hesiod, who uh, is the source for a lot of what we know about Greek religion, he also understood that the men who lived during the Golden Age, when Kronos, Saturn, ruled the pre-flood era, in other words, yeah. that um, when they died, those the spirits of those men became daemons, demons. Right, but they right. considered kindly and helpful as long as you sacrificed to them and uh, you know honored them properly. Uh, they just so it, it, he he understood that the spirits of the demigods from the pre-flood era were the origin of demons. It's just that the Greeks and the Romans uh, had a better opinion of them as long as you sacrifice to Heracles or um, uh, Asclepius or or Perseus, they could uh, they could help you. Uh, whereas Jews. And then later Christians said, oh, no, 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 that that's, you know, we do, we do not, we do not communicate with those. You know, God made it clear to Moses back in the day, don't communicate with the spirits of the dead or the spirits, the spirit realm at all through mediums or necromancers. So, um, yeah, that's what we're dealing with. They were once mortal, but yeah. uh, because of their hybrid nature, they have a kind of unique place in uh, creation right now. But uh, as Isaiah wrote, you know, they are Rephaim. They will not arise. <laughs> I have just, well, I'm just trying to, all right, but Mars, there is uh, a few um, entities I would wonder if you're familiar with um, and your, um, your thoughts. Obviously, you, you, your knowledge is vast compared to mine <laughs> um are you familiar with um an entity a dark asriel um i've i've seen that name but i don't th there's no biblical information about it so i i hesitate to have i, I don't really have an opinion on that uh, entity one way or the other oh i, I totally respect um your answer that's yeah i wouldn't wouldn't want you to make something up um and i respect you for that derek thank you um from what i can make out of it it's something connected to azazel mm. allegedly but you know we can only assume i guess um links to like uh, black queen lilith and samuel the black mm. which that be Sam Samuel, the venom of God, Samuel. Well, that's a name that uh, really comes down only in Second Temple Jewish writing, like the the Book of Enoch. And again, since it's not biblical, um, yeah. I don't, Sharon uses Samuel as a character in her uh, supernatural series of thrillers, um, but it's speculative. So we yeah. 
you know, we're not going to come out on a, a doctrinal term there that, you know, that where, where Gary Wayne's research kind of dovetails with ours is he studies a lot more what the occult secret societies teach and believe about these entities. Um, I don't really, we, we don't really get into that so much. We, we're looking more at what we can find from uh, the Bible and from what um, the pagans around ancient Israel believed from texts that have been found and uh, translated by archaeologists, rather than looking at what, uh, say, the Freemasons or Rosicrucians believed about those entities, because um, what they believe about those entities came from those entities, and so it's almost certainly wrong. Might be helpful, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it just not the area to which we've been uh, we, we feel led or called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for that one, mate. Um, just w one more. <laughs> it's probably going to be another strange one. Um, Pindar. Are you familiar with that that um, entity? In Indra, the uh, the the Hindu storm god. Pindar, Pindar. Um, oh, the, Pindar. Uh, Pindar, yeah, yeah. Um, familiar with the name, Greek uh, historian, if I remember correctly. Um, there, there is a Greek historian called Pindar, yeah, but the, it's not. That's not the one I'm referring to. It is um, allegedly um, a albino king of the nobles, reptilian shapeshifter. Okay, uh, no, not familiar with that. Uh, not familiar with that character. Right. Okay. Um, I mean, you hear so many. You're saying David, there's so many different gods. Uh, that is a fact. <laughs> there must be. I mean, well, ne I would like to guess. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, we, we will never run out of research. In fact, Sharon and I are praying that uh, when the new heaven and new earth is created, we get jobs in the archives. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so when um, your, your latest book, the, the, the Saturn, will there be uh, likely something to follow on well yeah the follow-up book which uh, again we hope to have out by the second half of 2023 is uh, the gates of hell and that's what we're working on as uh, a joint project sharon and me working on that together i'll tell you what when, when will it ever stop <laughs> <laughs> when we uh, stop drawing breath <laughs> i love that that's brilliant mate. i'll um what i'll do derek is I'll get all your links to for the show notes for your latest book, even for your previous book. We'll add it all to the show notes. Um, because if you haven't listened to any of Derek's work, then um, you you really have to, um, especially Giants, Gods, and Dragons. That's well, incredible. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, Derek. Uh, before we wrap things up. Um, do you think of uh, um, you know a message that you think that the listeners could benefit from? Just that this uh, this world that we see and perceive with our natural senses is just a small part of reality. Reality is much bigger than this, and I wouldn't believe it if it wasn't for the the writings of Paul and. His, this is why I keep coming back to 1 Corinthians 15. This was so important to me. When I realized what he was writing when he told the church at Corinth that 
the risen Christ had appeared to Peter and then to James and then to the 12 and then to 500 at once. James, Jesus' half-brother, when he was alive, did not believe in Jesus, according to John 7, verse 5. Even his brothers did not believe in him. And yet we know from the Jewish historian Josephus, who was a Pharisee, so he had no reason to validate the, the truth claims of the Christians living in his day, mentioned that James, the half-brother of Jesus, had been martyred by the uh, Sanhedrin. Now, why was James willing to die for the claim that his brother was God? If James, who grew up with Jesus, didn't believe in him when he was alive, why would he be willing to die? Because, as Peter, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, the risen Christ appeared to him. Oh, that might change your worldview. And for me, that was a game changer. So with yeah. that validating the New Testament and Jesus himself validating the Old Testament, Moses, Abraham, and all of the prophets, suddenly my whole worldview changed. And the deeper we get into this, as we study the pagan beliefs around ancient Israel and how the Bible and the prophets, the Hebrew prophets, were preaching and teaching against those gods, the gods of their pagan neighbors, you realize that this is a real supernatural struggle, and your soul is the prize. The enemy has already lost. They know it. And if they can't have this world, they'll try to burn it down on their way out and take as many of us with them as possible when they go. Yeah. We, as Christians, are just trying to get you behind enemy lines, behind our lines, away from the enemy, and minister to you. That is our mission. And some of us are really, really bad at it. We are the worst ambassadors for our king. But we're trying. Yeah. Just yeah. So that's yeah. the message. Understand that this war is real. The stakes are high. And not making a choice is making a choice. So please, I implore you, accept the historic fact. The gospel is very simple. It's in the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel by which you are saved. Accept the historic fact that Jesus Christ, in accordance with the scriptures, died for your sins, and in accordance with the scriptures, rose again on the third day. On the third day. That's all there is to it. And then the rest will fall into line after that. Yeah. Fascinating that, Derek. Um, that has to be one of the uh, most fascinating conversations that I have had. I, that I have had to this day. Uh, I'm very words after me. <laughs> um, I hope we can speak again soon, Derek. I really do. Amen. Uh, you do it. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, before you go, Derek, would you like to let everybody know where they can get hold of you, please, sir? Sure. Our website, where uh, you can find all of the stuff that we're doing, is at uh, gilberthouse.org. Gilberthouse, all one word, dot .org. So that's like basically you've got everything on that uh, you one website, all the contacts information, all the work you've done, your podcast, your books, just everything is on that yeah, that's, one website. So that's sort of the sort of our hub on the web, yes. That's spot on that, man. It all in one place like that. Well, we've got really? more websites than that, but they all link from there. So that's just the easiest way to get to us. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant, mate. Brilliant. Uh, Derek, 
you are a true living legend. Um, oh, <laughs> thank you, sir. Um, it has been a true privilege and honor speaking with you. Um, God bless you, brother. Thank, thank you very much again, mate. Uh, I'm going to stop recording now. Thank you. This six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.